0: Hey everyone, Uh, just wanted to let you know before we start this week's episode that this week's episode is sponsored by Amazon Prime. Amazon Prime, Jenny and I both subscribe, it's a great service and right now they're offering a free 30-day free trial that you can sign up through our website for. And it is 30 days, it's free, and you get all the great benefits of Amazon Prime. That means you can instantly watch 40,000 movies and TV shows. You can borrow books from the Kindle lending library. And you can get free unlimited two day shipping with no minimum order size. I-, I feel like I buy something on Amazon all the time. Jenny, I don't know about you. but I know I've
1: had some like binge Kindle purchases just because it's so easy. Um, yeah. But the lending library makes it easy to uh, kind of skip around actually paying for a book.
0: Exactly. It's all covered in this really great subscription service. If you do choose to subscribe eventually, it's $99 per year, and that's for everything. That's the unlimited free two-day shipping. You can instantly stream 40,000 movies and TV shows. You can borrow all those books, and that's only for $99 a year. But just sign up for this 30-day free trial. I have a feeling you're really going to like Amazon Prime. Uh, as we both do so again this episode is sponsored by Amazon Prime and you can sign up for that free trial through our website at thispodcastisnotyetrated.com
1: I'm Jenny Weffler
0: and I'm Gavin Briscoe and this podcast is not yet rated Hey guys, uh, welcome to what is this now? Our third episode back. Uh, we're glad to be back and uh, this week we are tackling some great films. I was really I, I was pleasantly surprised uh, by how good uh, how good this week's lineup was. So uh, we're really excited to get into it. Uh, But first, we just wanted to go over a few things. Um, We've been kind of hinting at in the past two episodes this kind of new format that we've been working on, and I think we've struck upon something pretty great.
1: This is probably this new format, or at least the new schedule, is going to kind of officially kick off in about two weeks um, when you can expect a new episode every two weeks. And the, the great thing about it is we've decided on... Kind of how how we're going to choose our movies, we're going to look at a new release, something that came out that week or the weekend before, and we're going to choose an older movie (laughs) or a non-current release that kind of uh, either fits the themes or the subject matter of the movie, and we're going to talk about it.
0: We think that this is uh, a bit different obviously than doing the the IMDb Top 250 and Bottom 100 Uh, but we think that it allows us to get really in-depth into two movies uh, and to compare and contrast and these movies as Jenny was alluding to we're going to pick one current release that'll be at the top of every show uh, that we think is is worthy of review for some reason. It doesn't mean that it's necessarily going to be a great movie all the time uh, but we think that it's going to be something that's going to uh, bring up a, a good amount of discussion uh, between us uh, and that it's uh, it's worthwhile to talk about. And then uh, one of us uh, will choose a, a complimentary film uh, that for whatever reason we think fits. And this week we have a great double feature for you guys. It's uh, Tom McCarthy's Spotlight, which just came out in limited release this Friday, and the Alan Pakula classic All the President's Men. So this is going to be a great episode, uh, particularly for me because All the President's Men is uh, one of my favorite films of all time. Um, But (laughs) before we get into the actual thing, uh, we just wanted to uh, make reference. We've kind of underwent a big website redesign and uh, we have all the new episodes up there, we're still trying to figure out how best to disseminate the older episodes, whether uh, they're going to be hosted and you can just download them at will, or whether, you know, maybe there will be a Dropbox file or something and you can just download the whole archive. We're not really quite sure yet, but hopefully in the coming weeks we'll have those older episodes available to everybody to, to download and enjoy. Uh, and obviously, you'll be able to check all of that out at our brand new website at thispodcastisnotyetrated.com You can also contact us if you have any questions, concerns, thoughts about this episode or our previous episodes at thispodcastisnotyetrated at gmail.com And you can check out our Facebook and Twitter pages that Jenny manages like a madwoman at facebook.com thispodcastisnotyetrated and twitter.com stillnotrated I think that's it. I think that's all the the business we need to get through so let's get into tom mccarthy's newest film spotlight i know there's things you cannot tell me but also know there's a story here and i think everybody will hear about it do you think your paper has the resources to take that on i do do you
1: the boston priests molested kids in six different parishes over the last 30 years The church found out about it and did nothing. We haven't committed any long-term investigative resources to the case. No, we haven't. And that's the kind of thing your team would
0: do. Spotlight? Guys, listen. Everybody's going to be interested in this. Obviously, the church will fight us very hard. trying to get some background information. I don't want you recording this in
1: any way, shape, or form. Nothing. We understand you've settled several cases against the church. I can't discuss that. There aren't any records of any of these settlements. Nope. When you're a poor kid from a poor family, and when a priest pays attention to you, it's a big deal. How do you say no to God? Spotlight. Is this the tip line? You think he's got something? I want to keep digging. We need to focus on the institution. Show me that it came from the top down.
0: They'll try to silence anyone who speaks out. You leave me alone, you hear me, goddammit? Six percent act out sexually. Six percent is 90. 90 priests. If there were 90 of these bastards, people would know. Maybe they do. You're going to give me the names and the names of their victims. Are you threatening me? I
1: I was doing my job. Yeah, you and everyone else. I am here because I care. We're going to tell this story. We're going to tell it right. I'm hoping we can keep this between us until we all get on the same page. Is that why we're here, to get on the same page? We've got two
0: stories here. A story about degenerate clergy and a story about a bunch of lawyers turning child abuse into a cottage industry. Which story do you want us to write? Because we're writing one of
1: them. I'm not crazy. They control everything. This is not just Boston. It's the whole country. It's the whole world.
0: They knew and they let it happen. It could have been you. It could have been me. It could have been any of us.
1: All right, so this is Tom McCarthy's Spotlight. Uh, Some other things you might have heard of that he's directed are Win-Win, which I know Gavin is a fan of.
0: Big fan Um, of that movie, yeah.
1: And also uh, The Cobbler, which I believe is on Netflix.
0: Okay, well, let's not mention The Cobbler (laughs) because that isn't... uh... One of the greater films he's done, but definitely the Visitor and the Station Agent are two movies that I think, uh, and uh, along with Win Win, I think that that's like a trilogy of movies uh, that uh, people should check out if they have uh, if they enjoy Spotlight.
1: So this story really—it's a true story. Which, if you haven't heard of this scandal within the Catholic Church, I—you must be living under a rock. But um, it's basically the true story of the Boston Globe, and this Spotlight team, which is their investigative journalism branch, um, really diving into this massive scandal and a cover-up within their local Catholic archdiocese. And it all kind of unfurls from there. And it stars Mark Ruffalo, who is really amazing in this film, but we can get to that in just a minute, Uh, Michael Keaton, Rachel McAdams, we have Schreiber, uh, John Slattery, and Brian D'Arcy James, and Stanley Tucci. Those are kind of like the core, or the core guys you need to know.
0: And also uh, Billy Crudup, who uh, has a, who has a minor supporting role, but it's an important uh, role.
1: Yeah, and I'd say this is really like a dream team of performers. They're just a really great ensemble. And I know I really enjoyed the performances and it was really easy to get lost. It's not really I got lost in the story, but it was more it was just so consuming that you could not look away.
0: Yeah, and uh I think like you said a lot of that does boil down to uh the performances here. I mean, there's there's a lot of great character actors uh from Jamie Jamie Sheridan to uh Paul Guilfoyle and others uh who just do a really great job. Uh, a lot of stage actors in here and uh I think I think we can both agree that the performances across the board are impeccable in this movie. What really strikes me, and the reason why the performances work, is the writing and the direction by Tom McCarthy here. Uh, he was he was helped out on the screenplay by uh, Josh Singer, who uh, has done The, the Fifth Estate uh, and then has done uh, some work in TV. I think what Tom McCarthy does best, and anyone who's seen Win-Win or any of his previous films knows this, he really does a great job at telling the story through these characters. Uh, and making every character on screen important and relevant to the story that's being told. there really aren't any throwaway characters. Um, even even the minor characters seem to have a kind of arc or a purpose for being in the story. And there's a depth to them that obviously is added to by these great performances. but it's also I, I have to believe it's also there on the page as well. i I feel like this is an incredibly fair movie. Uh, about a very difficult subject, and uh, I think that's really what McCarthy does best. It's uh, it's this kind of, this empathy and this, this uh, I think, this genuine humanism that kind of shines through all of his films, and I think that this movie is uh, maybe the best example of that. So I guess to kind of kick off the conversation... Jenny, both of us grew up Catholic. We uh, we grew up outside of Milwaukee, uh, within the Milwaukee Archdiocese. We were both, not only were we raised Catholic, but we were educated in Catholic school, grade school and high school. How does this movie speak to you, I guess, as being a member of uh, a community that is, is facing similar issues at this point in time?
1: Honestly, just watching, because I mean, we all, as Catholics, like, and I think non-Catholics um, also, you you know that something is going on because you hear about finances and archdiocese, you know, applying for bankruptcy or declaring bankruptcy. But it's you never really know maybe, like, the sheer, like, the scope of it all or how many people are actually being affected. And I think what this movie did, like, it's, yeah... It's a true story, but I think like the way that they kind of presented it, like the story, like the storytelling of it all, it, it you can't look away. And I know as someone who was raised Catholic and has just struggled spiritually a little bit, I, I just felt very kind of like shaken to my core about it. And and there's one line that Mark Ruffalo's character says, um, his character, Mike Resendez, he says, you know, as a child, I grew up going to church, and I kind of stopped, but I always thought I would go back. And he says, but how can I? Like, how can I anymore after knowing this? And I I think there's, there's just some really great moral kind of elements to this film. And for people who, who might be struggling with spirituality, that it's, it's definitely something to ponder while watching.
0: I think this movie, in many, at least for me, um, and you know, obviously, I was raised Catholic and educated Catholic, but I I consider myself uh, an atheist at this point in time. But um, to me, this is this is it's it's a difficult film in many ways because it's it's so layered. Um, I think what it addresses in terms of uh, spirituality is kind of this dual nature of. Religious organizations um, that kind of envelop or dictate certain people's personal spirituality. Um, I don't think there's inherently anything wrong with, you know, uh, people seeking answers through religion, Uh, but I think that there's something, and I think this movie addresses it, that there are definite issues when you get a whole, you know, billions upon billions of people into an organization, and it's all led by a group of people who are not only celibate, but basically, it, it's like this, this secret brotherhood, where they want to keep each other's secrets, and in their minds, in some people's minds at least, it's for the better good of what the religion is teaching. But ultimately, I think the effects of the scandal show uh kind of the downsides of uh, extreme faith in not the religion itself, not the faith itself, but the organization that organizes those faith principles. So I think it's, in many ways, I think that's why this scandal was so insidious, because, and why it rocked the faith of so many, uh, not just in Boston, but all around the world. Um, because it's important to note that, you know, when these revelations came to light in the Boston Globe, you know, it, it, not not long after, you know, there were similar reports in Milwaukee. Uh, there were similar reports in Ireland and all across the world. And uh, so I, I think what you're getting to is is right. Like there is there is something that uh, maybe we can work out over the course of this episode that really uh, uh, disturbs you about the complacency of the church and maybe even the complacency of people who belong to the church. And uh, I, I, I admire this film greatly because it, it dares to ask, you know, those necessary, difficult questions.
1: I think you kind of hit the right note when you said uh, it's about this larger organization that manages these principles. And that's something that have uh, Schreiber's character, Marty Baron, who's the new editor at the Boston Globe at the time in the movie... Um, He kind of he's like, we cannot just go after individuals because there's something bigger at hand. Um, It's the institution. It's it's goes all the way up to the Vatican, that kind of thing. Um, Right.
0: The character Marty Baron and as played by Leo Schreiber, I I think, is an interesting one because he is an outsider. Uh, Not only is he from, uh, I believe, Miami. Right.
1: Yeah, I yeah, think they he's... said he went from, like, New York to Miami, then to Boston.
0: That, okay. Um, but he he's definitely an outsider geographically, as well as religiously, because he's Jewish. And there is something to the fact that Boston is a very Catholic town, and you know, this story absolutely required an outsider in order to break it open, because it wasn't like the Globe didn't know about these things happening, it's that they weren't reporting on them, and they were burying them within the paper, and sometimes they weren't even writing about them at all. So I think, and this goes back to this point of fairness that I was kind of talking about with all of McCarthy's films, but McCarthy... He balances out, yes, these reporters are doing great work. They're doing a great thing. But then he also dares to ask the question, like, this isn't new. Like, this has been going on for decades and decades and decades. You guys have known about it, and you haven't reported it because you haven't wanted to confront it for one reason or another. And there does have to be a certain amount of accountability there. And, uh... I mean, I just I mean, I admire this film the death, but I think that that's one of the the amazingly nuanced, intricate details that really elevate this film uh, above what maybe a lesser director and writer might might have brought to it.
1: Yeah, and I think that's it's something I, w- I was interested um, as the credits rolled that this wasn't necessarily, I guess, put out there into the world by this um like a big studio distributor, and yep. it it, it kind of it it really piqued my curiosity. Did a lot of people just not want to touch this film because of the? I mean, everyone knows. About it, but people kind of do this little dance when it comes to religion because no one really wants to address like elephants in the room if something's flawed with it.
0: I absolutely agree, and I think we're gonna we're gonna be talking about it more when it, when we get to all the president's men because that film was distributed by Warner Brothers, and it was a, a massive success, and it was nominated for Best Picture, and you know, on and on and on. Um, and this movie, I mean, it just didn't get studio financing. Nobody wanted the film this wasn't even picked up by a major studio to distribute this was picked up by an independent distributor open road films uh who thank god likes to take chances on films like this and um i just think it's very very sad i think it's sad because for a few reasons i mean one that this story i mean i I, I hope it. I hope it does get enough national attention, and I think it will. And I should say that last weekend, this film opened in New York, Boston, and Los Angeles. Uh, it's going to be expanding to more major markets this upcoming weekend, and then it goes nationwide on the twentieth. So there is going to be available to people uh, to see. But I, I'm just—it's it, not going to have the amount of dollars behind it, the marketing dollars and the the PR push behind it that you know, a major studio film would have. And that concerns me and that worries me because it affects the kinds of movies that people see. It's cool and it's kind of, it's in now to kind of complain about superhero films and to complain about the dearth of like just really great movies throughout the year. They seem to be concentrated in Oscar season, right? You know, this time between October and December each year. I don't know. It worries me that these kinds of films can't get financed by a studio because they just don't see them as being profitable. And I hope this movie proves them wrong. I really do because I think we need more movies not like this. Not necessarily about investigative journalism or about child molestation or anything heavy necessarily, but just films with an integrity and a quality to them that speak to the human experience and not this fantastical bullshit that Hollywood just puts out almost nine months out of the year. Uh, and it's, you know, it's kind of why we wanted to do this podcast again, uh, because it is kind of this frustrating loop of superhero movies and box office bullshit. And uh, a movie like this, I really hope it it's able to cut through.
1: I will say, I do think it's good to have a, a certain amount of, you know, those bullshit films in a year because there is definitely an audience for that. <laughs> um, but thank God for this distribution company that picked it up because they, correct me if I'm wrong, they, they have a relationship with AMC Theaters and Regal Cinemas.
0: Right, um, well, it was... So they'll
1: it, at least get in those theaters.
0: Right, well, it was, it was, I mean, this movie is getting, you know, a lot of attention, and hopefully if the box office returns are great, it'll it'll get picked up at, you know... A ton of theater chains. But you're right. Open Road was actually built by AMC and Regal as kind of this distribution company to basically make films that they could put into their own theaters, specialty films that they could put into their own theaters that don't cost a lot to make, but that have a high profitability potential because they don't cost a lot to make. You know, if you make a movie for $10 million and it grosses $70 million, that's a a big profit.
1: You're right? doing pretty good then. Yeah, you're doing pretty
0: good. But I'm not going to beat up on studios for making tent poles. Those are necessary, obviously, for the economy of the movie industry. What distresses me is that very few of the studios are taking a risk on these mid-budget, mid-to-low-budget films because they're only interested in creating a franchise or creating a tent pole, and that is disturbing to me. You know, uh, and obviously we can, you know, there are exceptions to the rule. We've had Straight out of Compton this year, uh, which, you know, doesn't lend itself to franchise appeal. Um, you know, we've had uh, Steve Jobs, this great biopic, you know, both of these being universal films. You know, so there are definite exceptions to the rule. But I think by and large, you look at this past summer and what was it filled with? Can we even remember what came out this past summer? I I, it just it's it's inherently frustrating to me, but I I don't know. I think let's let's get into the movie because this is a great movie. We should be we should be focusing on the movie itself. So as Jenny was saying, the performances in this across the board are great. I agree. Mark Ruffalo is turning in one of his finest performances uh, in a long time, and that's saying quite a bit. Um, but then also Michael Keaton here I think does a really great subtle job. Uh, with a role that could, in a lesser actor's hands, kind of turn into this scenery chewing role, and mm. uh, I think, I think with him, he plays it straight, he plays it real, and because of that, there's this huge payoff at the end, um, just emotionally. There's a single shot, you know, we don't want to give up, you know, what happens at the end, obviously, but there is this single shot of him at the very end of the film, that just blows you away, at least me, uh, just really hit me in the gut, uh, because we see Keaton, and we see uh, him as this character, Walter Robbie Robinson, who's the head of the Spotlight unit, just kind of absorb the impact that this story is going to have, and the repercussions this story is going to have, beyond just Boston, but across the Catholic world as a whole. And I think that's a tremendous... uh, I think he's a tremendous asset to the film in this way. Rich McAdams similarly does a lot with what could just be a a minor character, but she really imbues this character of Sasha Pfeiffer with this, this, this warmth, especially when she's talking to victims and when she's relating to her grandmother and to the other people in her team, she's this strong character. And I think kind of this, uh, this compass for the rest of the team in many ways
1: piggybacking onto that there there's this scene with her significant other I think husband um and she is you know, she's having trouble in the kitchen like trying to close the dishwasher and she just kind of you know lets out this huge exhale and he's just like rough day at work and there's just something about that moment where I was like wow because like the sheer internal like everything that's going on with these characters internally one thing that's interesting is they can't talk about their work so they can talk amongst themselves and I I just think it's interesting to see that kind of like their personal lives because it doesn't dive into them too deeply in the film but uh when you do see it you can see how much as characters they're affected by the story and the scandal and how not only does it affect them but how going to affect their community and the world frankly
0: right and I think that tension is uh, I think it's as you said I think it's apparent with all the characters um Mark Ruffalo kind of plays as Mike Resendiz he kind of plays this uh this character who who doesn't have a great work-life balance in many ways uh I connect him with Uh, the Robert Redford character uh, in All the President's Men with a little bit of the Dustin Hoffman pushiness. But he's kind of the loose cannon, uh, the guy who gets emotionally invested in these investigative stories, right? And these are all great journalists, but I think what McCarthy does is he gives each one... He just he presents us with the facts that these are all great journalists, and then he shows us what each of them brings to this team, this four-person spotlight team. And the uh, the one person on the team that we haven't mentioned so far is Brian Darcy James, who we don't see too much of, you know, in comparison to the other three actors. Um, but I think he he's a guy with this work-life balance. You know, he has kids, and he lives in the same neighborhood as one of these priests who uh, is accused of molesting children over the well, course of several decades.
1: And not only that, but it, it's it's this house of priests.
0: Yeah, it's this house of priests where basically the archdiocese has put these priests uh, together who have all been accused of this and they just put them all in the same house together and they're in a neighborhood. And there is kind of this really interesting running through line for his character of kind of coming to terms with that. And, you know, there are kids in this neighborhood and, you know, there's this really great discussion with him and Michael Keaton in the film where he, you know, he discovers that this guy is living in his neighborhood with all these other priests. And he's like, when can, you know, can I tell the neighbors? Uh, Can You know, when can we tell people? I don't want anything else to happen. And he's like, and Michael Keaton responds, you know, we will soon. We will soon. And there's this discomfort. uh, And you can see it in uh, James's performance. Like, this isn't quite moving fast enough, but I trust the process enough as a journalist uh, that I know that this is how the story needs to be told. I think uh, the Ruffalo character has a more difficult time with that it's not that he's a bad journalist and it's not that he doesn't know uh, how the process works, but, um, you know, as we see towards the end of the film with him, there are repercussions for these investigative reporting cases taking as long as they do, you know, the, the evil acts that are being perpetrated by these priests, by these clergymen are not put on hold while Spotlight is doing this investigation. They continue to happen. And they still continue to happen even after their investigation. But I think the Mark Ruffalo character grapples with that. uh, And Ruffalo, in his performance, does, I think, a spectacular job, just kind of showing that...
1: um, It's like a perseverance, almost, for his cause.
0: It's the severe dedication to his job and what he's doing. And he believes that journalism is what can save these people. And I think he's frustrated, along with the audience and along with the victims of these crimes that these people are talking to, with how long that process can sometimes take. And I think that's also another thing that this movie kind of deals with uh, in an interesting way. In an age now, uh, when investigative journalism is just being cut across the board, Newspapers are just cutting their investigative units because they cost a lot of money and they take up resources. You know, to have four people on your staff who are dedicated to a single story that might take three or four years to write and you might not get anything out of them until that point, that's, I mean, that's a lot of money that that requires and that requires subscribers. And those are things that papers don't have now. And I think what's interesting about this movie is it takes place right, right on the edge of kind of the internet really taking down this establishment. And uh, I don't know, I think it really causes the audience to grapple with, uh, you know, these, obviously we see that these stories are necessary, but how do we make sure that these, that these people are funded and are able to do this necessary work?
1: It, it is a worry because you know you look back. I think this time in history, this when the scandal came about, it was a few months after nine eleven, and you do see a bit of nine eleven in the film um, right. because it takes place during the time that they're investigating. Which, I mean, there is a moment when they're kind of like, "Are you guys going to keep working on this?" Because you know this this event that shook the world just occurred and, and they, like, and well, they can't
0: for a while, which is, which is, which is fascinating. Like they, they do have to put it on hold.
1: It is kind of amazing. Like they're, they're like, no, we, we have to go, we have to let everyone know about this. And it, it's interesting because there's this decision like, well, we can't release it before Christmas <laughs> because that would just ruin people's year. Um, but it, it it was just kind of interesting how the timing all unrolled um, towards the end of the film.
0: One of the neatest things that this film does with the Ben Bradley Jr. character played by John Slattery and with uh, the Marty Baron character, as we mentioned, Leah uh, Schreiber's character, I think what's really interesting here is kind of that that tension between budgetary, restrictions and what they know is necessary journalism and uh, I think this film is so great in so many ways that we've already discussed uh, we could probably go on another two hours about this movie alone but I I, I think that one of the essential questions that this that this film raises uh, is is this question of you know, If we don't pay for journalism, what are we saying about the importance of journalism in our society? To me, and what this film is making a case for, is that journalism, investigative journalism in particular, keeps everything else in check. Whether it's religious bureaucracies, government bureaucracies, what have you. They keep everybody else in check. And if we don't have that oversight anymore what happens in our society, or if that oversight uh, willfully doesn't want to publish the stories, you know, or there's a tension there between the stories and what might upset their subscriber base. If we don't have those people on the lookout, what can happen? And I think this movie answers that question. This is what can happen. And I, I, I think that's ultimately why I filmed the film so troubling.
1: I'm, now, very aware of why we chose this double feature because when you watch this movie, you can't not think of the parallels between Spotlight and All the President's Men, and no, also just it's... the fact that, uh, you know, John Slattery's character, as Gavin mentioned, is Ben Bradley Jr., who, um, is the son of Ben Bradley,
0: who... played by Jason Robards in All the President's Men. So, it, it there is this. It, it, there is this meta element to it. You know, obviously every film about journalism since All the President's Men it pays deep homage to that film. Um, but this film in particular, it not only is it paying homage, but there's a, there's a, a familial lineage here, uh, which is fascinating. I think this is all the time we have for Spotlight, but Jenny, are there any final thoughts uh, about this film that you just want to wrap up?
1: So I walked out of the theater... I I had like three immediate reactions um, really to just watching the film as a whole. There were moments where I was like, Oh my my God, this is going to give me a panic attack or I just want to break out in tears or maybe I'm going to puke just because (laughs) there's so many harsh realities in the film that I guess, I mean, I'm aware of, but I'm just, I've never been confronted with them like that. And I think at the time I was too young to really understand when this all came out. But I think if you go see this film, you're going to have some interesting reactions. And I do think it's going to be a little bit different for everyone, but at the end of it all, everyone's going to walk away going like, wow, that was a fantastic film. Um,
0: right. And so you would recommend this film?
1: I wholeheartedly recommend it. And I, I do think this is going to be near the top of my favorite films for this year. Yeah. Top of the list.
0: Yeah. I I completely agree. Uh, This movie, whatever your religious background is, I don't think it really matters. Um, I think this film, in just addition to being just a great tense movie, just highly entertaining, well-made movie. um, It's, it's, necessary because of these questions that we're bringing up um and uh i i've already recommended this film to my parents i hope uh and to several other people i hope uh everybody does go out and just watches this movie uh not only because it's gonna it's gonna have uh not only is it probably gonna have uh a lot of nominations come oscar time but it's just a really terrific film. And uh, I gotta say, al- along with Jenny, this movie is, uh, right now, it's uh, it's sitting up near the very top of my favorite films of this year. Um, so it'll be interesting to see uh, if, that, uh, if it continues that way. So uh, as, as Jenny mentioned, it's difficult to talk about Spotlight without mentioning All the President's Men. So why don't we just do that? And uh, let's just get into our second film, Alan Pakula's All the President's Men.
1: Unit 1 to Unit 2. What? We're home. Base 1 to Unit 1. Base 1 to Unit 1. Hold it, you mother! Hold it! Police! There's been a break in the Democratic Headquarters, and they were bugging the place. Woodward? Bernstein, you're both on the story now. Don't get out. Redford. I'm Bob Woodward of the Washington Post. Mr. Markham, are you here in connection with the Watergate Burglary? I'm not here. Hi, uh, this is Carl Bernstein, of the Washington Post, and I was just wondering if you can remember... All the President's Men. The story of the two young reporters who cracked the Watergate conspiracy.
0: White House.
1: Howard Hunt, please.
0: He might be at
1: Mr. Colson's office. Mr. Charles Colson? Did you know, uh, Howard Hunt?
0: Well, the White House said he was doing some investigative work.
1: What do you say? They stumbled into leads. Certainly it comes as no surprise to you that Howard was with the CIA. No, no surprise at all. They tripped over clues. We'd like to see all the material requested by the White House. All White House transactions are confidential. This whole thing is a cover-up. is right on our nose. And piece by piece, they solve the greatest detective story in American history. There is no way the White House can control the investigation. I, I don't want to say anymore, OK? You've been threatened if you tell the truth. Is there a cover-up? Don't you understand what you're on to? Mitchell knew? Of course, Mitchell knew. Woodward! Bernstein! Get in here! At times, it looked as if it might cost them their jobs.
0: You guys are about to write a story that says the former attorney general, the highest-ranking law enforcement officer in this country, is a crook. Their reputations. Why is the Post trying to do
1: it? I don't know. Perhaps even their lives.
0: the President's Men is, for all intents and purposes, the movie about journalism. Uh, it's it's the movie that, you know, all journalism students see in their Journalism 101 courses. They read the book, uh, you know, they read uh, about Woodward and Bernstein, um, and basically how they, they reshaped what investigative journalism looks like in this country uh just as the movie based on their journalism kind of reshaped how we view uh movies about journalism and how we review investigations and uh, investigative movies and, and and things like that I, I mean it's it's very difficult to kind of minimize the impact that this film has had on every film similar to it coming afterwards. Full disclosure, this is one of my favorite films of (laughs) all time. And uh, I think we're going to touch on a lot of those reasons, but Jenny, as somebody, you you know, you've seen the film probably three times. uh, I think, what do you get from this film each time you watch it? Because I feel like I, as someone who's seen it quite a few times, I feel like I learn something new every time, or I get something new out of it. Uh, Do you experience something similar?
1: I saw the film probably for the first time. Actually, I know I saw it the first time. I was in kind of this sleep-induced state after having my wisdom teeth removed, so I didn't have the best first exposure to this film. But... um, I, I would say that every time I watch it, I probably gain an appreciation for it, and for everything it represents. I'm always, like, amazed by Robert Redford and uh, Dustin Hoffman's performances, just because, I mean, how can you not? And they're they're on screen for, I mean, they're not on screen the entire time in the film, but, I mean, they're pretty well on screen for most of the film, and... It's, I mean, this was, I don't want to say this is the height of their career, because that could be insulting, but I know this was the time when I bring this movie up to, like, my mom or something, and she goes, oh, that was when Robert Redford just looked his best.
0: Yeah, I mean, every time I see this film, I mean, it just, the, the first time I saw it, uh, what blew me away were these performances by Redford and Hoffman. I just think, I, I mean, I, I I don't want to say that they're the best performances of their career because both of these performers have had immense careers and they're titans of the American cinema, uh, Dustin Hoffman especially. Um, there is this magical quality to these performances, and I think a lot of it does have to do with the look, not just how good-looking they are, but <laughs> also um, this kind of this hunger that is referenced in the film. Um, by their uh, the metro editor, uh, they, both of these guys work for the metro desk, and uh, their their editor, uh, you know, when he's kind of trying to argue uh, to get this story into the paper initially. Once they start, you know, sniffing around uh, when uh, the Watergate scandal first really. Well, it wasn't even a scandal then. It was right after, uh, right after uh, five individuals broke into uh, the Watergate Hotel, and uh, Woodward and Bernstein uh, were on the case uh, from day one, and uh, they were trying to find space in the paper. And so their Metro editor, uh, he has this great line. He says, uh, Howard, they're hungry. Do you remember when you were hungry? Uh, referring to uh, their hunger uh, to to kind of chase down these leads uh, and to kind of find these great stories and tell them to the public, um, and I think that these that these two performances are nothing if not persistent, persistently dogged in their approach uh, towards interviewing uh, people, towards following up leads, and. It, it, I, I, in my In my mind, they, they're more than just journalists. they're great detectives. Uh, and they're great psychologists in many ways. you know There are so many scenes when Dustin Hoffman uh, is is kind of sent in to woo uh, a female uh, assistant or you know he flies down to Miami and he kind of he literally forces his way into a room uh, to get a meeting with somebody. You can really sense these actors' intentions. Uh, and you can really you really get a sense that you are watching these characters on scene uh, on screen uh while this film is happening and so yeah i think you're absolutely right i think the performances are something great but let's let's kind of go through the movie here and kind of talk about why this film might be remembered in such high esteem uh as it is now i mean i think part of it boils down to the people who are associated. Obviously, we've talked about Hoffman uh, and uh, Redford, but we also have to mention Alan Pakula, who during this time created, in my mind, the ultimate film trilogy. It's called the Paranoia Trilogy. It was this film, The Parallax View, and Clute. And with those three films, he really defined the 70s both just as a decade culturally, but then also filmically as well. Um, I think every spy movie and every, every psychological thriller and every paranoid thriller owes its depth to this man's work. Uh, in addition to the Gordon Willis cinematography, the William Goldman screenplay, where it's like every other line, you just want to remember it forever, because it's <laughs> so great. And uh, the David Shire score. Uh, David Shire, of course, composed the music to The Conversation, among other movies. Um, and to, uh, interestingly, uh, I, I don't think I even told you this uh, yet, Um I'm currently in a class about Walter Murch, the great sound editor, the great sound designer and uh, film editor, and uh, we spoke with David Shire just the past week, and I got a chance to ask him a question about All the President's Men, and uh, he talked about how uh, Pakula didn't want a lot of score throughout the movie, so he maybe only wrote 30 minutes of score and only 20 minutes was used. Which is kind of you know for a two-hour fifteen-minute movie, uh, that's not a lot of time.
1: I will say, just jumping in, you don't uh, actually. I, I'm su- I'm surprised by that fact because I I didn't notice like that there were ever moments of silence. I mean, there were definitely moments that demanded exactly. silence mm-hmm. um, because they were just si- silent scenes. But I never noticed like, oh, this is weird. This- there's no sound, like music in the scene. Or we, I never once thought that. So I'm actually kind of surprised by that fun fact.
0: Yeah, it's... Um, I mean, I think you're exactly right about the silence. Like, this movie, it, it even without music, it is not silent. Because the performances, I think, speak volumes. Goldman's words, as spoken by these tremendous performances, and we're going to go over a few of them, but... I mean they do create a kind of music and then also with this this brilliant cutting uh by Robert L Wolf uh who did the editing on this film um and then Pakula's just style this movie I feel like this movie sings when it isn't you know when it just kind of the most inane things are going on. And I think a lot of that has to do with the sound design. A lot of it has to do with the cinematography. And then a lot of it has to do with the performances here. Um, and let's get into some of these performances. Let's let's just do it. Because we have some of the great character actors of all time. Uh, we have Jack Warden playing Harry. Who, of course, Jack Warden was in uh, 12 Angry Men. Uh, and just a brilliant uh, character actor. Martin, Martin Bolsom. Another uh, Twelve Angry Men, Jason Robards, who plays Ben Bradley, who, as we were speaking about um, in at the end of our Spotlight review, is the father to the real-life person that John Slattery is playing in Spotlight. Uh, and to, to kind of compare and contrast those performances and what roles uh, the Bradleys have in each of those respective films is, I mean, that would make a podcast unto itself. When uh, Bradley passed... Uh, I believe it was a I believe it was a year ago or a little over a year ago now. That really hit me uh, personally and I mean it hit a lot of people um, deeply because of his his long career as a journalist. but it hit me deeply and I think a lot of that is because Robards imbues him with this this human quality uh, that's both larger than life and also uh, deeply personal and loving of these two guys. Uh, Woodward and Bernstein, and of all his staff. Uh, He says at one point in the film, he has this great line, he says, I can't do the reporting for my reporters, so I have to trust that they do the work. I mean, that just kind of sums up the work of an editor, uh, in my opinion, and... uh, I don't know. I, I I really fall in love with the Jason Robards performance every time I see it. But then also Jane Alexander, who, of course, worked with uh, Dustin Hoffman in Kramer versus Kramer a little bit later, uh, is this great character actor. Um, I would compare her in many ways to Joan Allen. She, I, I feel like she really is. Jane Alexander is like the Joan Allen of... Uh, her generation this great character actress who kind of peeks in and out of these movies and you're like who is that uh and when you see her on screen you know you're in good hands uh and then of course hal holbrook who plays deep throat in the film uh, and does a really great job
1: also jason robards won the oscar for best actor in a supporting role for this part and jane alexander was also nominated for best actress in a supporting role so we're We're not just saying these were great performances, but their their peers also agreed in the right. industry
0: exactly. and I think uh just talking about the Oscars in relation to this film, what's super frustrating is that neither <laughs> that neither Hoffman or Redford weren't even nominated, which is I mean that's crazy to me. That's absolutely crazy. Um, and William Goldman obviously ended up uh, winning the Oscar for uh, Best Adapted Screenplay. Um, but uh, Pakula didn't win for his direction. Uh, it didn't win Best Picture. This was, of course, at uh, the 1976 Oscars. Uh, 77, well, the, actually. Yeah, the ceremony took place in 77, but it was for the, the calendar year, 1976. And, of course, this is kind of referred to as one of the greatest years in cinema, uh, because the same year, you know, Network came out and Rocky came out. Rocky ended up winning, of course. Um, And so it does kind of speak to what we were talking about before. Like this movie really took, you know, it took the country by storm. And it was about uh, uncovering, basically our president who was doing these illegal things and the uncovering of that and the first resignation of a U.S. president in history these two men were directly responsible for that and the fact that that movie could get made and that that movie was so popular and could get nominated for best picture and what have you and be financed by Warner Brothers and a movie like Spotlight can't I think it says something about the differences between then and now and the difference between audience expectations then and now. Um, I, don't, I mean, I don't want to belabor the point because we've already talked about it enough, but I mean, I think if you want a better example of that, um, I don't think you could find one.
1: Yeah, and we did kind of like beat this over the head, but like in terms of just investigative journalism or just uncovering, truths um this this film tops the list and i think it really set the standard moving forward
0: yeah and i think you know we we can list all the you know we could try to list all the reasons but that would be exhausting but i think uh just two or three points that i think really make this special are uh the cinematography here by gordon willis the way he frames each and every shot Um, and I I particularly noticed at this time, you know, something new, um, was how he frames those garage shots with uh, between um, uh, Woodward and uh, Deep Throat. How he frames those. It's not just a pretty shot, although every shot in this movie could be a painting. Um, It's very much about how the frame, the impact the frame has on the character, what is the image we are seeing on screen saying about the character's internal state and saying about the story? Um, and it's constantly moving it forward in that way. So I think Wilson's cinematography is one thing. I think how Goldman chooses to move the story forward. There aren't any title cards in the movie explaining, now we're in 1972, now we're in 1973. You know, he doesn't do that. He uses this ticker tape approach. Um... He uses, um, uh, throughout the film, we see these these major events playing out in the newsroom as everyone gathers around the televisions as, you know, Nixon is uh, inaugurated or as he's picked as the Republican nominee uh, at the convention. Uh, and we see Woodward and Bernstein working in the background. Um, and so that passage of time is just handled so elegantly. Um in a way that I think, uh, different films, uh, just kind of put a lazy title card on there and then expect you to, uh, you know, just kind of pick up on it. And then I think a third thing is how, is how the movie's paced. You know, there's one scene in particular where, uh, they're talking, uh, in a car, Woodward and Bernstein, they're talking in a car, they're going over their leads. And, uh, the next scene is, uh, the, you know, he mentions, uh, Bernstein mentions in the scene, he's like, uh, I need to follow up with this guy in Miami. The next scene, they're just in Miami. Bernstein's just in Miami. He walks into the office, and the only way we know it's in Miami is because there's 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 this big seal, you know, Miami, uh, Dade County, you know, behind the desk. And so I think, I think what I'm trying to get at is that there's this sense from Pakula that not only does he trust his audience to get it, but he expects his audience to get it. And it's treating his audience like adults. Um, and I think that's what Spotlight does well, and I think that that's what this movie does well. And I think that's why it lives on for so long. Because it doesn't feel the need to explain the nitty-gritty of things. It just explains enough to push us to push us along through the story. Um, when they say uh, one of the characters, uh, I believe it's Deep Throat, he tells Woodward to just follow the money. And I think this film is difficult in a lot of ways because there are a lot of names flying past you uh, and you're like, who was that again? Who was that again? But I think that those words are almost kind of, uh, you know, they're, they're Goldman and they're Pakula saying to the audience, you know what? Just stay on the ride. You know, you're, you're, you might have to see the movie a few times to like pick up on who's who and what's what. But if you just follow this ride and you follow the intentions of these spectacular actors, that'll get you through the movie.
1: Yeah, and I I think something that I really appreciate about the movie, and I mean, this is speaking as someone who did not grow up during this time, in fact, did not even exist during this time. Uh, I, I didn't feel like it was at all dumbing it down for the audience whatsoever like it was very aware that the audience knows or is aware of this scandal you know and I I guess what I'm trying to say is that yeah maybe like future generations might not know the Watergate scandal as well as current generations do but the film you can watch it and you you grow to understand it as the story unfolds on screen. And I think I can really appreciate something like that because it is, it's like watching history come alive right in front of your face and it doesn't dumb it down. And as someone who, like I already said, was not alive during this time, it, I feel like I can fully understand what was happening and kind of like the bigger implications of it all just you know, through the editing or through the performances and the screenplay. And uh, I think that's, I, I don't know if they intended this for future generations. Probably not. They probably didn't even think about that at the time. But I think, um, I just think that's interesting to note.
0: I I completely wholeheartedly agree. And I think when I was watching Spotlight, I got the sense, I I feel, I, I felt what, people watching all the president's men in the theater in 1976 must have felt because they're watching a story that they're slightly removed from, right? Like it's been a few years, um, but it's still very much, they're still dealing with the repercussions of this. And I think that in many ways that we've talked about, spotlight is the all the president's men for this generation it, it it isn't replacing all the president's men but i think it is a natural i i almost think that it's the perfect companion piece for now all the president's men will live on forever right but i think spotlight is speaking to slightly different issues and it's speaking to how journalism functions in our world today um in addition to you know this really Terrific and necessary story, um, so I think watching these movies in tandem—I I mean, it made me appreciate both movies so much more than I probably would have, you know, just viewing them, you know, without knowing about the other. Um, but I guess you know, just one final question because we could, we could literally talk about these two movies all day, but just one final question to wrap it up: How do you see? the future of these kinds of movies uh, about journalism or about investigative journalism uh, going forward.
1: I, I mean, in the future, cause it's, it's difficult cause you're asking about the future, but I do think something that's important to note is that, and we mentioned this when talking about spotlight, but spotlight took place when internet journalism wasn't necessarily alive yet. And I, I, I'm kind of, it's it's a little scary because we do live in this age where we can access news instantly on our smartphones, and, you know, it's, it's not necessarily fact-checked before it goes out or investigated as thoroughly as it could be, and it's a little scary to already be living in that age where we don't get that deep dive, kind of, or... A, Deep level of uh, carefulness put in, into the journalism, and so I, I do think right now we kind of we are in that future. Um, yeah, and I, I do think it's interesting to kind of watch this the history of journalism on the screen in both of these movies.
0: All right, so that was all the president's men. Uh, all the president's men. Uh, you can find it available to stream on Amazon, and it's only two ninety nine. I mean, this movie is worth. Uh, a blind stream if I've ever seen it. You can also purchase it uh, on Blu-ray, and uh, the Blu-ray actually has this wonderful, it's this feature-length documentary, uh, which I think is really worth checking out. And if you go through our website, click on the links and purchase through there, uh, we get a little kickback from that, and that helps us to put out uh, a great quality show, and to continue doing this show uh, the way we'd like to be doing it. So we'd really encourage you to be doing that. So... Uh, as Jenny, you were talking about uh, at the top of the show, we have this great new format uh, where it's going to be we're going to be doing two episodes a month. So every other week we're going to be doing an episode. But for the next few weeks, we're actually going to be doing one episode a week because there are just too many great movies to discuss. And so next week's episode, we're going to be discussing Brooklyn, the, the new John Crawley film. And we're going to be discussing Frederick Wiseman's latest and greatest, his 40th documentary, in Jackson Heights, both of which are currently in limited release and will be branching out uh, further. So we're going to be talking about those, and you can look for them in your feed next Tuesday.
1: Yeah, and if you have uh, any thoughts, comments, concerns, questions, or if you also saw the movies that we talked about today or that we're talking about next week, um, feel free to drop us a line at this podcast is not yet rated at gmail.com or connect with us on social media uh, over facebook.com slash this podcast is not yet rated and twitter at still not rated um and we love hearing from you so we will definitely get back to you or, or talk about it on the show
0: and as always you can find all our new episodes on itunes or wherever you subscribe to podcasts and uh you can find all the information we just listed because it's a lot, you can just find it on our official website at thispodcastisnotyetrated.com.
1: And with that, I'm Jenny Loeffler.
0: I'm Gavin Briscoe, and this has been This Podcast is Not Yet Rated.
1: Auf Wiedersehen, Gesundheit, mm-hmm. Farewell.